1: yesterday maybe two days ago when i was doing the research for this and you were speaking about if you could rescore a film you said you would rescore the wizard of oz and you spoke a little bit about the dark side of oz which i hadn't seen until the other night and i ended up watching and that is that's one spooky film i ended up down a little bit of a rabbit hole with it
2: <laughs> it's one of those it just it's, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, some guy was obviously sat there in the 70s, you know, after Dark Side had come out, just listening to the turntable on the headphones with Wizard of Oz in the background. And it's just, the, the way it fits is uncanny. I suppose to explain the idea a little bit to anyone who's not sort of seen it or doesn't know what it is. It's basically Pink Floyd's album, Dark Side of the Moon, dubbed over the Wizard of Oz from start to finish. But the most impressive part is is the beginning of the film to the first colorization of the whole thing. Um, it's just wild. And Pink Floyd were actually asked about it a lot. I think if they had written Dark Side to directly coincide with Wizard of Oz, and they deny it to this day. But I think they're talking bullshit, man. <laughs>
1: It kind of makes you wonder of when you think about like the rhythms to the editing of film and stuff, are there some kind of natural rhythm to things that it just so happens that these two things line up and because they've kind of both tapped into the same groove? I think
2: that's probably the, the most um, sensible answer I've heard in a long time, actually. <laughs> um, but that's definitely a thing, yeah. Um, I mean, God, what were we watching the other day? I think it was The Simpsons, right? I had the Simpsons on in the back. I love The Simpsons. I think it's great. I can't remember what song. We were listening to. I think it might have been the Beastie Boys or something. Um, here, uh, not Beastie Boys. Sorry, the Beach Boys. Two very different bands. Uh, <laughs> um, Heroes and villains. I think that. I think that just taps into a rhythm that goes in with anything. Clearly, but yeah. Always nice to to do that, especially when you're writing. If you put the telly on in the background and put it with no volume. And do some writing. You get some pretty interesting stuff going on.
1: I was gonna ask that actually. Do you have do you have any like go to films or, or pieces of kind of TV or whatever that you tend to stick on when you're writing? Simpsons. Maybe you gonna do that if you think of yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Um I, I just I like anything really. It's not something that I've been doing for a long time. Just throwing something on in the background. There's actually a really nice piece on Netflix, which is um a fireplace. Uh, and you can have like a burning fireplace in your home whilst you're reading a book. That's very good, especially in you know lockdown when all you want is sort of coziness and uh, you want to avoid the sort of four walls setting. But yeah, Simpsons is fucking great.
1: <laughs> that kind of run that they had from maybe like second or third season all the way through to like 10th or 11th. Just like a solid 10 year the TV that's just every episode just knocking it out. It's up. crazy.
2: It's really crazy. Yeah, and they just, they just get better and better as they go along, and then they just crash off. But I, th- <laughs> I think they will, they will go down as some of the best TV of the 20th century um, slash 21st century.
1: The thing about The Simpsons as well, and it's the same. It was actually, you know, I hadn't seen The Wizard of Oz in about... since I was a kid. Sure. Until I watched it the other night. The thing about both of them is that almost there's so many shots in that that are so artistically done, and every shot almost feels like a painting. I mean, particularly with The Wizard of Oz, Simpsons as well, but when you think of The Wizard of Oz, like the set design and the kind of composition of it and everything, it's just every shot. It is. It's its as well. It is. It's
2: very, I imagine Lynch has taken a lot from it. Or Lynch, uh, David Lynch would have seen the potential that those sort of worlds could have. But the Hollywood guys at the time were just not exploiting it because no one fucking wanted to see weird stuff. I think Lynch made it very clear that there is a market and an audience for shit, (laughs) which, I mean, yeah, you talk about the Wizard of Oz, it's just a classic. It's just, I mean, you get some horror stories about some of the crazy stuff that happened to, uh, I forget the name of the leading actress. Judy um, Garland. Judy Garland. Yeah. So it's uh, that there's some horror stories surrounding that and the sort of golden age of Hollywood and, but what actually entails around that is pretty frightening. The movies they were churning out at the time, oh, I mean, you know, you got Gone with the Wind stuff and Casablanca, obviously, which everyone talks about. Yeah, superb. I love films. Films are fucking great. <laughs> Just allow <laughs> you to escape into this other reality for an hour and a half, two hours. Video games do the same for a lot of people as well, um, which is why I think, especially in lockdown, people turn to video games and films. And, then comes music. If you can listen to the right music, of course. Um, what have you been listening to in lockdown? I mean, you know, or, or in the perceived lockdown that you were
1: having recently. Um, actually, you know, the last lockdown, the Dylan record. Yes. Because that came out. That came out just as it was kind of ending. That's right. Quite a nice, a nice way to finish it.
2: I broke ru- lockdown rules to listen to that. So rough and rowdy ways, right? Yeah. BBC Six Music were doing this um, all-day sort of build-up to the Dylan record being released, basically playing a load of records that Dylan had been influenced by, and then a couple of Dylan's numbers. And it was just a really great program all the way up to it. And my friend has this really great speaker system, a really great speaker system. He said, you know, what are you, what are you doing this evening? And I was like, I'm staying up and listening to the Dylan record, you know, what are you do. And I think his girlfriend got involved because we were just texting back and forth and she was like, why are you just sat here texting each other about how good this Dylan Record's going to be? Why don't you just meet up and listen to it together? And this was the first moment in lockdown where he sort of felt like, yeah, why, why aren't we meeting up? You know, before you take everything to gospel and you just stay in your home and, you know, sit about doing fucking nothing. But uh, yeah, so I went over and we, uh, we had a couple of bottles of wine and a jazz cigarette and uh, (laughs) listen to the new dylan record yeah it's fabulous it's it's just i must have listened to it maybe a dozen times um it's just incredible
1: it's one of those records as well that you can uh you want to listen to it from start to finish you don't really i wouldn't say i really put on a song from it. i tend to kind of go the whole way yeah the whole way no i think
2: that's fair enough um just shows you the caliber of of what he's doing and. The guy is 77, is he or is he? Is he? Eight? He's, he's 78, 78. Fuck. Fucking hell. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing that uh, we talked about in terms of my friend when, when, we, when we listened to it is the, the way he's completely embraced um, himself as a collage artist. Um, and you pick up different pieces and, and references from all of the different, you know, literary works that he's obviously studied over his life. That and
1: track's I Can Ten Multitudes. He kind of touches on it quite a lot. I that. think
2: that's purposely written to do so. But yeah, he's done it all his life. You know, that is, that is the kind of artist that Dylan is. He's a collage artist. And I think anyone would be fucking daft to not try to style at least once. It's a it's when you when you start pulling pieces together and, and um, making them your own. And they are your own. You know, this bullshit about Dylan's a plagiarizer is just complete rubbish, you know. Only Dylan would be able to take phrases that out of context would seem so n- nonchalant and meaningless and give them meaning, inject them with some sort of sentiment. He's a really important guy. I'm glad you're glad you listening to that record because it's fucking great.
1: <laughs> Why It's interesting what you're saying, though, there about people, you know, accusing him of plagiarism something like sampling is kind of culturally accepted but then when it comes to something like what dylan does it it seems to be a little bit frowned upon by some people yeah that is interesting isn't it
2: i think with sampling you're purposely creating something that's familiar You, you you're you're stamping something that is familiar that people already know so with sampling you hear that groove in a song and you fucking follow it and then whatever comes you dig it Whereas with Dylan's, it's a little more dangerous. It's a little more of a tightrope walk, which is the stuff that he references from Shakespeare and from Walt Whitman and from Arthur Rimbaud or definitely Arthur Rimbaud's style. People sometimes don't like that. As I said before, you know, it takes... People can sit down and listen to music and think. They just see it as such a face value, see it as such a thing that exists, that it's just one thing. It's really not. It's so many different things that have had the most perfect circumstances to then come together and create what it is you're listening to. And that's where you get some of the best records of all time is because everything was in the right place to allow those songs to exist. Dylan's just a vehicle. Um, he's just a, his body is just a vehicle for art and literature. And that's why he got the fucking Nobel Peace Prize for literature because he fucking deserved it. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: What age were you at when you kind of stopped taking music just as it was at face value and kind of started looking a little bit deeper into it and thinking about it quite a lot? In a, yeah, objective I was about
2: way. 16, 15. You get to a point in your life where, at that age, you're also not taking rules and authority at face value. Um, you know, everything before that, you, you just do what you said. It's, it's what mommy says and it's what daddy says. And Dylan is what happens when you don't listen to what fucking mommy and daddy say, you know. Um, it's what isn't it, and when you start... Um, you know, you all um, first smoke a pot and suddenly explodes your tiny mind. Um, yeah, you either have it or you don't. Some people just, and whenever I'm making music, I always make sure to send it to the people that I know that look at it at face value that will just see it for what it is because it's important. <laughs> you might be thinking that you're doing the most amazing and experimental stuff and thinking, yeah, this is, you know, really pushing the boat out. But if you show it to someone who, Densees, well, it's a bit, and you're not doing the right thing so it's that fine balance yeah I don't know what about what about you when did you start taking an interest into music I mean
1: I think I, I mean I kind of got into films before I got into music
2: interesting but films you can say the exact same sort of it's the exact same sort of thing you know breaking down each shot and
1: yeah you're spot on I mean I, I got into films in terms of starting to get obsessed with them when I was maybe like 14 13 and then by the time I got to about fifteen, sixteen, it was you were re- you know, reading interviews with the directors and becoming obsessed with whatever sure. shot meant. Like that, uh, what's that Shining documentary? Is it room 237 when it goes through everyone's kind of different theories for, the, for what it could mean? I have no idea.
2: I've, ne- I've never heard of that, but that sounds fascinating.
1: There's like, a, I think it looks at like a dozen kind of theories behind the meaning of The Shining, and it's fascinating to kind of <laughs> see everyone's different in interpretations of it. Yeah, it's
2: great. I'll definitely uh, look that up. But yeah, it's um, yeah film. Film is a, the exact same setup, isn't it? It's breaking everything down, and um, I mean Kubrick is just a, a, a genius, and uh, I think you know, there's that old thing that Kubrick never ever wastes, uh, you know, frames. He'll, he'll always cram everything into you know the shots.
1: Fincher as well. I don't know if you like David Fincher's films. He feels like a slightly modern equivalent of that, where every shot is so meticulously done and kind of done to a T each little detail i'm not familiar
2: with uh, with, with with him what, what what stuff does he do
1: he did like seven fight oh, and fight oh sure Kongo. he's got um he's got a new one coming out which is about the screenwriter of citizen kane cool very cool and the kind of backstory between that and it's kind of done in that sort of it's done like in a in the style of a film of that time and i know that nine inch nails have done the soundtrack for it and done it with instruments that were only around at that time and kind of done an orchestra thing so. Yeah, it's meant to be incredible i'm looking forward yeah. to it i think it's coming out on netflix like it's end of this month or something
2: i mean there's the interesting um thing about when musicians sort of blend into films and you get sometimes you know you get the most amazing stuff I've seen um i watched lawless the other day which nick cave wrote the screenplay for and did the music with rock warren ellis tom hardy shia labeouf can't remember who directs it but that's great that's a really decent film and yeah you know it does does all the the Period instruments and stuff, uh, which is really cool. So,
1: it was kind of one of the first films I think as well, where Shia LaBeouf kind of yeah took on the role of a slightly more serious actor. Yeah,
2: it, it was, um, it's hard not to admire him in that, in that film. I think he's great. Fuck what everyone says about Shia LaBeouf. Buff is the man. You know, you get all these people saying he's an asswipe. He's the fucking man, Shia LaBeouf. I'll shine his shoes any day of the week.
1: I watched a couple of his recent ones. Have you seen uh, Honey Boy, the one that he wrote about him and his dad in that relationship? No, 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 no. What's that called? Honey Boy. It's a film he wrote about his kind of experience growing up as a child actor and his relationship to his dad. It was a bit of a prick. Of course, because he did. Um... And then he plays his dad. Interesting.
2: So, he, I mean, because he'll understand that character more than fucking anyone. But he did, even Stevens when he was a kid, didn't
1: he? Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> it's interesting you mention Kubrick as well, or we, we mentioned him a, f- a few minutes back, because the the album cover for this has kind of got a slightly Kubrickian edge to it. It's almost like Kubrick mixed with Dylan, like the two yeah, yeah.
2: It was definitely influenced by Dylan's I mean, "All Back Home." That was uh, I remember seeing that artwork. It was just like, well, it's it's. Uh, tells a thousand stories, you know. We, we saw the space that we were recording in uh, Eve Studios, where we did the second record, and we just fell in love with it, you know. We took so much from those walls, so had to immortalize our surroundings, you know, and it just, it just felt so right, you know. I remember getting the photograph when we went down, and we actually shot it in the room that we stayed in. You know, it looks like it's this big living room but that was just full of beds. Um, so we took the beds out. We got the sofa from the control room, which was a bitch to, you know, work around. It's just this old like Vicarage cottage, you know. we we, you know, got a lot of shots. And the cat, the cat that was with us in the studio for the three weeks, sauntered into the room as we were, you know, just sitting down and taking the first few shots and tested the, test the lighting. And the cat jumped on the sofa where we were sat and just sat between us. Um, as he did when we was in the studio, you know, we'd be recording and he'd come down to fucking sit on his lap because you know he, he was he was great. Adam the cat, he was called.
1: The cat's almost like a ghost in that album cover because I mean I've got that record on vinyl and I must have looked at the cover a heap of times and I didn't spy the cat. I didn't see that cat until a couple of days ago when I was putting it on to do research for this and I was like, "There's a cat in that cover." Everyone
2: <laughs> says that. <laughs> Everyone, you know. They always say, I, did, I didn't even realise the cut until, you know, two, three weeks after getting the record. But yeah, when we saw that shot, it was like, that's the one. So we got that sort of Kubrickian. It's the long, with the the ceiling and the floor in shot, and you can just see that opening out. everything centred around one piece. Very cool. Enjoyed doing that shot a lot.
1: How long did you spend deliberating on the references you were going to kind of pack into it? Because there's so many books and stuff kind of scattered about the place.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, put together a mood board of what we wanted to sort of foreshadow or, or have in, the, in the, the, the album cover. But yeah, we, it was more just on the day. You know, we just brought boxes of stuff that we thought would be pretty cool to have in the cover. And we set them up and lots of them worked and some of them didn't. But um, yeah, you've got the old record, you've got a load of literature that we were reading at the time. You've got the Red Roses for our political allegiance, if you like. Definitely not for our uh, geography, though. You know, Yorkshire's the white rose. So... Uh... <laughs> and then, yeah, just... I think my favourite one is there's a star in one of the mirrors. If you look in, in one of the mirrors, there's a star, a red star, very faint. That was above my bed, and I always used to go to bed looking at that red star, and then it comes up in black glass. Sunshine in my TV star gonna go for black glass. <laughs> oh i had a fascination around mirrors at the time when we was doing everything every time we was because i do all the videos with sam you know conceptual wise and we i had this strange fascination with mirrors I Just love the idea of what they do and I would like to do some more with that
1: there's something quite cinematic about them
2: yeah they're just uh, very spooky, very mysterious.
1: I mean, sp- thinking of the record as well, with Something Wicked This Way Comes, the scene in, in the book, you know, the, the, the kind of hall of mirrors that plays such a pivotal part. Yeah,
2: mm, yeah, I was just obsessed with mirrors and it seeped into everything. Never really spoke about it before, actually, but yeah, it's just been a lot of acid at the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was going to ask about the clocks as well because there's three clocks, clocks on the cover.
2: Yeah, yeah, clocks and mirrors, man. Clocks and mirrors was just, yeah something i didn't quite know why they were so important i just knew they were <laughs> yeah clocks i think um every clock in the the cover is our birth time although i think one of the birth times is wrong <laughs> <laughs> which is mine because i rang my mum up it's like when was i born what, what what you know what specific time was i born she was like, i'm sure it was something like you know half past four Anyway, she brings me up the next day. It was like it was six o'clock. Are you fucking joking? <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of them's wrong on the album cover.
1: What was the what's the kind of layout of that cottage like? So to drag the couch up to get it in that in that room because it is the control room. I was because oh, I was reading an Is the control room like below the live rooms? Or yeah, you... the control
2: rooms in the basement. We had we we stayed in the vicarage upstairs, which is the rooms that were for the old you know church inhabitants. And then you have the middle floor where we had a kitchen, which we would, we would make a, an effort to do dinner in there every day or tea, if you're from where I'm from. Then we would have, you'd have all the live rooms on that um, floor, so you'd have a keys room, piano room, live room, where you would set the drums up and guitars. And, and then downstairs you would have this crazy control room that goes along to an echo chamber. Um, where you do all the pieces of percussion and stuff and then a vocal booth so it was just like a an anthill I don't know what it was about that space but it, it just felt so just everything was flowing you know there was a there was a train that was just fucking flying um, and we were all off in different rooms doing our own thing whilst different takes were going on and we had a very very cool time.
1: How long were you in for? Three weeks
2: about three weeks so um, wanted to do a little bit more but that's the nature of making a record: is that the time constraint is there, especially when you're in, you know, you're on an independent label. The time constraint is there for you to <clears throat> push yourself creatively, because you're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. You have to allocate your time correctly; um, otherwise, you lose money and don't really get much out of it. So, that's sort of. I was having a conversation. A couple of days ago, actually, with uh, one of my friends who, who works with us and just talking about how important producers are and what they're really there for. And uh, one of the things you can find yourself doing very quickly in a band is just going down these rabbit holes that just have nothing at the end of them. You know, it's, it's such a waste of time. So a producer's there to crack your heads together and say, this is a waste of time. And that completely underplays the producer's role because there's so much more than that but we've we've been talking about doing a record on our own now for you know the last six months thinking you know we fucking can do it and we'll do it ourselves but it just comes to the conclusion that we just wouldn't be able to do it you know and it goes back to this face value thing on music is that everyone thinks that you just shit it out like that, you know, that's it, you've got a song. And it re- it's so much more than that, um, especially recorded music. A live show is something different, you know, a live show demands feel and belief, you know, you are, it's, it has to be believable, it has to be something where you're like, this guy is, I, I would have fucking eat out of the palm of his hand. With recorded music, it just has to be so... Everything is intricate, everything is, every, everything is thought about, and everything is worked on. When people think, yeah, that music's full value, all those individual sounds and those things that make records iconic, you can't just do them like that. You, know, you can't just trans, transfer what's going on in your head onto the equipment because you don't know the equipment, whereas producers, they just have this understanding that is unfathomable. We're hoping to go in and work with James Skelly over the next... Um, few weeks. The
1: guy from the Coral.
2: Yeah, yeah. Did the Blossoms record and stuff. Um, I think that's going to be really exciting. See what we could do with him. But I think he is the sort of epitome of that. You know, you look at Skelly's and, and the records that he's worked on and the artists that he's worked with, and he just has this this glitter, this this stamp that you just can't get anywhere else apart from a a well-drilled producer. So
1: it's interesting what you were saying about. The idea of, of when you're in there you you go down a lot of rabbit holes that come to they don't come to really any conclusion the producer's job is to pull you out of that when you did the first record was it easier to kind of evolve, avoid them because everything was so tied to that concept and it was so kind of surrounded by that kind of Orwellian dystopian soundscape and, and notion? I
2: think the first record we were far too inexperienced to go in to record a, a, an album so in my in in, in from my experience we didn't do those rabbit holes enough the first record for me was just so tough um, because it, it was so much pressure and so little time and we'd gone into the, rehears- the the studio with six songs seven songs so and then we, was, we sat down we, we intended to do an ep we got it rolling and it was sounding fucking great you know even even we were sort of taken aback by how good it was sounding and the management turned around to us and said, we want, we want an album. So we tried to pull our finger out and uh, just write in the studio, basically.
1: That must completely change your headspace, though, does it? Yeah. The management says that, because if you think you're going in to do an EP and suddenly you're in working on your debut record.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was intense. It was The depression was unbelievable. I remember just falling into this sort of depression that I've never experienced since, thank fuck. But it was, uh, I always remember the date, it was October the 31st, it was Halloween, three years ago from Halloween, and that, that was when my head just fell apart, um, and it took me about six months to get it back together again. It was horrible, but when I look back on the album, and I look at the things that we were doing, especially with Gavin, I'm just blown away, you know, it feels like it's not, it, it wasn't us, and that was probably due to the exhaustion, probably due to you know, the amount of drink and drugs that we were fucking taking, I don't know, but... Um,
1: How yeah, old were you when you went to record that record?
2: 18, 18 when we, when we recorded that record, so that was sort of the first introduction into, you know, the seedy parts of music and what comes with it, and sort of the sacrifices that you have to make, you know, mentally and emotionally to do it. You know, you look at bands who go on the road, they go on the road for... You know, probably three quarters of their year, and they get maybe one or two days back at, in their own bed, and they go out again. There's, I don't think many people would be able to do it. You know, if they really understood what what went on in in bands and stuff, and in in the music industry, that a lot of people would fucking drop out and say no. Nope. Having said that, the one thing that's been on my mind for you know the last six months is going. Back in with Gavin from the first album and, and uh, doing another record with him. I'd love to. I'd really love to give him, give him, a, give him another go because listening back, it's just fucking great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I, I, really d- I
2: really had a bad relationship with that record, but yeah, you listen back, it's like fucking
1: hell. It's like a sledgehammer of that album. It's just wild, continuous swing, and you're it's wild. I'd like to see what Gavin can do
2: with us with an abundance of rabbit holes uh, <laughs> as, as, as opposed to uh, not enough. So,
1: What were the, the six tracks you had when you went into work on that record?
2: You could tell from a mile off. Um, ICB, Lutat, Brutus, Gotta Get Through. We had Brave New World. That's the six
1: tracks. Those are the kind of things that cope that album together. If you, you can tell that the rest of the album can just breathe out from that.
2: Yeah, definitely. They were the anchor to whatever we were doing. Um, everything else I completely agree It's just some sort of offshoot and orbiting around it if you like.
1: But then speaking of orbit, orbit itself is quite different.
2: Yeah that was something that that was at our hardest point in the studio I remember we just had a phone call that one of our friends from back home from back in Doncaster had um, decided to take his own life so uh that was pretty heavy. Charlie was working Charlie the bassist was working on these lyrics for Orbit. It just it to me that song just recalls home in 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 no other way that we've been able to do before and or 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 since. It just sort of summed up our perception of the world around us as eighteen year olds coming from a you know dead end fucking town. We did this like really fast version, you know, this like beat poetry sort of listening barking it was fucking great it was electric but it just wasn't it wasn't there it wasn't doing it for us so we were all in this really somber mood and Gavin was like why don't we just jump in the live room and we'll, we'll, we'll play some music together I was like, okay and then that's when Gavin started playing the, the notes on the piano and then we just started playing around it all all one like take just straight through like that and then the words just flew it just came out just read them off of, off of for paper, I think it was one or two
1: takes that that song. So very proud of that song, actually. You completely get that sense of rawness in it.
2: It's it's raw, both emotionally and the way it was done. And I think Gavin Monahan is very good at identifying that. You know, I remember when we were mixing the record because we mixed it in the studio that we recorded it in, which is not not very common. Normally, you go out of house to mix. But there's a guy called Joe Murray there who is just pff, he's just a genius. And Gavi, you know, Joe would try and clean everything up and take all the little bits out and Gavin was like, no, fucking keep them in. You know, that's what makes this band the band that they are, you know, these fucking yelps of uh, delight and uh, screams of, uh, you know, enthusiasm that then seep into the other mics and... Poor Joe was trying to desperately, you know, get them out of the mix, and <laughs> for Gavin to tell him to put them back in, you know. <laughs> so
1: I think those those little bits that you speak about as well, the kind of madness of it, that's what really gives that first record its energy, or it's quite a, you know quite a key contributor in that.
2: I remember listening to the records that I loved; they kept in those bits. You know, those, those bits made them: uh, Otis Redding, uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, The Doors. Um, even the Humbug stuff from the Arctic Monkeys you know they keep those imperfections in
1: I mean all the way back to the Beatles they did it as well Had those little kind of wee bits just tagged on the end of songs just taken from recordings
2: yeah and it's I, I love hearing conversation in, in, in studios and I love hearing little stints and uh, you know what's the famous one the, the one from Abbey Road where he introduces Let It Be that was Archangel from the Kingdom Killer. <laughs> <laughs> And now you're gonna hear Paulie sing, "Ah, the Angels come. It's just great, you just know that they're they're human then. You know, it, i think it makes the record so much more human. Bob Dylan, you know, we talk about Bob Dylan all this time, but I was riding on a meat flower <laughs> on the spider land and then he starts fucking pissing himself laughing because none of the band come in. And it's the most human you you hear Dylan.
1: That's probably the one moment on a Dylan record that isn't completely controlled then. In- sure kind of cater to the idea of what Dylan is
2: yeah and uh, I think that's just as important as anything is having that ability to just create who you want to be and be very strict about what you are and because people fucking love it I love it I love to see the bands that I'm into have a particular identity and something that they stand for or don't stand for I think all that being in a band is is a vehicle for your own opinions your own perceived shortcomings just exploded on on this phenomenal scale that is performance put it in such sour words but it's what it fucking is you know if i wasn't doing this i'd be a fucking actor
1: (laughs) you You kind of you had a wee bit of a character for this record though didn't you were you not in character for kind of parts of the the recording process yeah yeah you're in
2: character for everything man you know I, i made sure to record Uh, Wearing a suit, you know, wore a suit all the time on the second record. Just didn't wear anything else. And the lads sort of started following suit, if you like. You know, saw me on like the third day. I'm still in this fucking pinstripe suit with this turtleneck on and the Cuban heels. So everyone started wearing the suits. You know, it does. It gives you a, it gives you a, a, an atmosphere. It gives you a just a world that you live in. You know, you start to become these characters, and it starts to seep into your records. It's like method acting almost. Except I do it all the time. I go to take my dog for a walk. I wear some fucking Cuban heels, you know. <laughs> it's just the way it is. I
1: think it it gives you else to keep you rooted in a certain kind of mindset. Yeah,
2: which has been the most difficult thing about down is coming back from from such a, a long period of time away from stage. And I don't think I don't feel like I've come of age this year. Every year of my adult life so far I felt like I've come of age each time. But this year, I just feel like I've done nothing uh, but take probably too many psychedelics. I don't know, man. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, feels, it feels like I've not done anything. Whereas before, you're so um, overly stimulated or overstimulated to locations, to cities, to people. Festivals can age you about three years. You know, if you look in, you, you take one look in those toilets. That's it. It's, you've got three years on your life.
1: <laughs> I think it's hard to notice yourself changing, changing as well. though when you're not in contact with other people as much. Like a lot of when you notice you've changed as a person is when you see someone you haven't seen in years, and you kind of realise, "I oh, know, I've developed quite a bit." Sure,
2: sure. I think that's going to be. Don't get me wrong. I, th- I think there's going to be a, an absolute renaissance of music. After lockdown, you know it's gonna be it's it's gonna be an explosion of art and forward thinking and progressive thinking, but it's gonna be really difficult to come into contact with people who you've not seen for a long time and yeah, re- re- retain whatever you had before. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know you're speaking there about art. are you still doing your paintings and stuff as well. You know, no, I'm painted
2: nah. Yeah, yeah, I, I have am painted for a while now. Actually, uh, I've been learning drums, which has been really cool. Just, uh learning you know traditional grip drums, like a uh, buddy rich shit, but painting I sort of ditched for a while. Probably just, i can 't be bothered to clean my brushes, man you know i have got better things to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but i will I'll, I'll be getting back into that for sure, especially over Christmas when you know hopefully going back with the family which is which is the hope, obviously Christmas is my favorite time of year, or every year with our family, someone makes a fool of themselves. last year, it was me. The year before, it was my stepfather. The year before that, it was my auntie who sat on my fucking Beatles records and fucking broke
1: them. Uh, <laughs> she's like, for you than her. Yeah, yeah. I well. feel like her embarrassment doesn't quite <laughs> outweigh your. Uh, oh, your pain. dude, she
2: wasn't embarrassed. She was drunk, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And last year, my stepdad threatened to egg some car or something for parking outside whilst they had a drive to stop our family from parking on the road. And last year it was me drinking whiskey and singing
1: IRA songs. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, There you go. <laughs> why
1: why do you think you're gonna get back into painting around Christmas time though? Just because it's you feel a little bit more inspired with it being your favourite time of the year or
2: I don't know. I think it's just because you know you're around I, I struggle being around people for a a prolonged amount of time so when there's five or six of you in the house or four or five of you in the house I think painting has this incredible detachment from the rest of the world I think it's probably why I took it up in lockdown because I was so afraid of what was going on in the world you just take yourself to this other reality which you know and sometimes movies don't cut it and sometimes books don't cut it sometimes music doesn't cut it so I tried painting and I fell in love with it I would just paint whatever came to my head. Back when I'm around other people, you know, you need your own space and you need to escape into a world. Painting will probably be the first thing that I turn to. So,
1: I mean, you've used paintings for inspiration kind of in your, your songwriting as well when you look at something like that was That's the name of the painting as well, isn't
2: it? That is, yeah. That's the exact name of the painting. Yeah, we, that was in the Imperial War Museum in London and it's a painting that hangs above on a mezzanine. It's this abstract sort of, we just wanted to bring it to life. We were just captured by the, the image so much that we wanted to bring it to life in both word form and, and music form. It turned out really good for us. We, we, I like that song a lot.
1: Was that the first time you'd seen the painting? Like when you, when you saw, had you heard of it before? Had you seen pictures of it before? Or? No,
2: just, just the one. Um, it was Charlie that actually saw it first and then I saw it after him the first sort of thing. It just, sometimes that's what inspiration is. It, it's almost like it comes down from the fucking sky, um, which is why it's so important to put yourself in front of as much opportunity and as much chance for inspiration as possible. You can't just sit and write. You can't just sit at your desk and write. It's not how it works. You have to be inspired by something. So you, you have to, something has to completely you know take over your mind for even if it's for 20 minutes and you're just you're away yeah when when those pieces of inspiration come it's uh you just have to bottle it up as quick as you can before it goes and some people are very good at doing it quickly and others take a while to compartmentalize what it is they've seen or heard but um all the same
1: how did that function for this painting was that something that you took a while to kind of muse upon or was it something that very much you kind of had a visceral reaction to and you you wrote pretty quick off the back of having it in your mind
2: yeah i think the the music was um something that we spent a long time on but the the lyrics were very much just fucking straight away the overwhelming sense that you get from places like imperial war museum whether they mean to or not um, whether they mean to instill it into you or not is the sense that war is just so futile and pointless. Um, and you know, as we're coming up from um, the eleventh of November today, it's probably interesting to talk about how I find it very difficult to think about war dead because it just feels like such a a waste of life, such a loss of life, and all of those people, every single statistic that are killed in war is a person, is a human being with thoughts like ours and with dreams like ours. And so, when you see a painting like Track, in the context you do question why it is that we you know live for heaven and hell and why we try and make our lives so you know, so rigid and so obstructed by something that's meant to be waiting for us after this life fuck that that that's fuck I'm not doing that fuck that I'm getting my fucking kicks now <laughs> I'm, I'm not waiting around to go up to some fucking you know heaven or hell but it's, Fuck that!
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like you saying the song. Um, if hell is below, them, what is this? Because there's so
2: there's so much going on here that is is worth putting right and worth fucking fixing. To ponder in song, you know, it's a, it's it's meant to meant to make you ponder and just think. Uh, not that you know many clergymen are going to be listening to our music, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, so I don't I don't imagine we'll be converting any people with with, with that mindset. But. <laughs> Oh
1: yeah. It's interesting that you follow it then with Rage at the Dying of the Light. It's almost like you're answering the question to a certain extent that, that Mule Trap poses.
2: Oh sure, yeah, if we allow the things that are happening uh, to continue, then that is a genuine, a genuine scenario. Uh, I like the way that Radiohead play around with words and they make such simple phrases and such simple ideas blossom into sprawling songs. So Rage at the Dying of the Light, you know, I can imagine like Tom York singing it or something. And yeah, it it just creates that scenario of apocalypse. And would you rather have some sort of suicide pact with your lover and die together other than having this long, slow, drawn out, horrendously painful death, which is probably going to come to us sooner than we think, you know, if we're not fucking careful.
1: Yeah, it's an... (laughs) interesting it feels it feels like i mean this is the tensest i can ever remember it being in terms of just global tensions with everything that's going on
2: yeah yeah it's uh, all my life i've never had anything that goes for um me in terms of politically and socially and i think that's why so many people of our age are questioning why why is that the case you know why have we got all too old fucking white men arguing over the presidency in the United States of America. I mean, don't get me wrong. I imagine that Biden will bring some sort of normality back to the United States. But still, you know, is it, is it, is it quick enough? Is it uh, because before we know it, there's going to be some sort of global emergency that, you know, is 10 times worse than the pandemic that we're going through that is related to climate change or that is related to reaping what we sow from the shit that we've been doing for the last 200 years so until that happens i'm gonna get my fucking kicks
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you you touched upon that as well and in this decade which is again another song similar to mule trip where you're kind of pondering things you're kind of just looking at the horizon and being like who knows what's going to happen next
2: yeah it's in this decade it's the best song i've ever written i'll happily say that it's just um don't know where that came from it's everything i wanted to say in in one song and it does, you know, you've got, a, like you say, with Mule Track, you know, it's all about being in the now and, and not con- conforming to this idea of afterlife and be good in this life because in the next one you'll be rewarded. You know, it's, it's, it's do it now if you've got someone to tell that you love them, that you haven't told them in a while, you know, do it because you never know what's going to happen at, at this rate, you know, especially with the coronavirus, you know, and people who, who lose their, their families you know whole families have just been ripped apart by it it's just so important now more than ever to uh tell someone you love them
1: yeah for sure i mean it's it's interesting what you are saying there about that being the best song that you feel like you've written as well and it does feel like a complete kind of cohesive thought and it is like you say a perfect summation of a lot of the themes of the record although although it was written as a singular song how did putting it at the end of that kind of affect the way you felt about it and the way you kind of perceived it I mean, we knew as
2: soon as we heard that song that it had to go at the end of the record, you know, it was, you just get them sometimes. And I remember, I remember showing it to Rob Ellis. Well, I actually showed it to Matt, you know, the former drummer who I used to live with at the time. He had this crazy argument with his, with his girlfriend, um, which I overheard, not through intention. And I just penned it there and then. And I played it in the second pre-production that we had. So Rob come down. Pre-production is basically, you know, you go, your producer comes and listens to you play the songs in a in a rehearsal room set up and he changes them around. And we were just having a break and I started playing it and said, Matt, listen to this, what I, you know, wrote last night. And Rob just said, stop there, whatever you're doing. He said, what, what, the, what the fuck is that? Oh, it's just this song that I've just been doing. It's like, well, that changes everything that's got to go on the record he says oh, well, what do you want to do with it you know what 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 do you, you want to put strings on it do you want to put some pianos and, like get like a cave ballad sort of thing like, no 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 <laughs> he says i want you to go to the pub i want you to have five or six pints i want you to come back and, and record it on on a microphone just one microphone so as so we had that in the back of our mind while we were in the studio we was always trying to find the correct night to do it you know, I, I would ask Rob, say, you know, it's tonight the night, Rob. Are we going to record this in this decade? He's like, no, no, it's just not quite right tonight. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. All right, all right. Always. And finally we got to it. And I just remember just fucking almost, almost crying after recording it. it. Just sort of moved me to almost to tears. Yeah, and I'm just so glad it exists.
1: I mean, it shows us a different side of your vocals as well that we've not really heard before
2: yeah probably one that's gonna um, persist Uh, I really like that style the stuff that we've been doing just through the nature of lockdown behind a laptop with a microphone with one guitar and acoustic it is sort of held back a little bit more so but we're working on a lot of a lot of stuff that we're really really excited to
1: uh, pursue do you have uh like a concept yet do you have an idea that's going to unify this together or is it just kind of songs that are coming out of where we're at right now
2: one uh sort of uh, consistency of, of the stuff that we're doing at the moment is this idea of going to somewhere else creating these sort of lyrical landscapes if that makes sense we're very much trying to paint images with words and uh you know paint colours in your mind which has been really exciting and I think it's you know uh, me and Charlie sort of got our our each you know relative um chunks of paper together and slammed them on a desk and said what you got then and, and almost every song that we wrote had the word sun in uh, which I thought was really interesting so yeah it's it a lot of escapism a lot of otherworldly I think the title that we've got going around our heads at the moment which is really interesting is um Uh, vaguely regarding the flowers which I think is uh, a nice summary for for the stuff that we're doing so
1: as part of that I remember last time we spoke as well as part of that escapism because you were reading quite a lot of stuff like that because I remember you were like quite into Pratchett and things and
2: yeah, probably. Um, the reason why I can sit and talk here so much about the first record and the second record is because I'm looking at, at it retrospectively, whereas this, what I'm doing now, is, is very much in the now, so I don't really know what's going on. Just still sort of feeling our way through it in the dark. I don't know, really. I'll I i I'll be able to talk about it in six or 12 months, I assume, but uh, until then... Um, I don't know we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and very excited to get in the studio again which is our intention we've just finished a few demos which has sounded fucking great so
1: at what point did you did you get with this album where you felt like you were able to speak about it and you kind of gained that sense of perspective on it where it's no longer something that you're in the midst of and it's kind of done and and you can you can talk about it
2: yeah when you start moving on to different stuff when it when it stops becoming the forefront of your mind when you're making a record and the subsequent months after that all you think about is, is you know, that. It's, it's just your, your, your soul's work for the last 12 to 16 months. It's, it's your mind. It's, it's a document It's a it's document in whatever's going on in, in, in your head, and I think that's so unique. You know, it's much like an author working on a novel or something. You know, that you, you, you get up, you think about it, you do something about it, you go to bed, you think about it. You can't sleep because you're thinking about it. So when you stop thinking about it, then you can start talking about it
1: <laughs> is it ever tough when you're in the midst of that you know and you you can't stop thinking about it
2: yeah you become obsessed over it you, be, you become through and through an obsessionist i haven't got time for anyone who says you're overthinking things or that's the phrase i always hear you're overthinking things you you're looking into it too much fuck that there's no such thing as overthinking something you know attention to detail and specific detail is is what make people great artists and almost geniuses you know you can, you cannot be at the top of your at the peak of your ability if you're not thinking about those attention to detail so yeah I'm a complete fucking obsessionist people hate being around me when when we're making records but that's just the way it is you know that's just the way I work
1: were you like that before you made music. Do you think was that already something that was kind of in you, and this is just a way to channel that slightly obsessive nature.
2: Possibly, I, I think it, I think it sparked. I think it was definitely there underneath me somewhere. But I think it sparked when when I picked up a guitar and I knew that I was gonna be I was gonna be learning this, and I wanted to I wanted to learn it to the best of my ability. But it's never really it's never hit me like it has before when, when working in music, and you know, there's a there's a desire there and a and a, a real Intent to to chase something you know i've got so many ideas in my head that i want to sort of translate into the real world um which can be really frustrating yeah i've never yeah it's just a a pure obsession
1: was there anything else that that music triggered in you in the same way that that it spawned that slightly obsessive you know attention to detail like, I mean, if you think about the energy of the records, was that an energy that was kind of present in you before? Or was that, again, something that music kind of brought out of you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed acting when I was younger. I used to go to acting classes and workshops and was in a load of school plays. And I always remember every character that I would do, you know, I'd go full on. Uh, it was a little bit scary, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who were so, you playing? Uh, uh, yeah, I did, like, um, Oedipus, I think, was a favourite. That was... Really cool. Leave it to Smith, which was a really interesting show, a really interesting play. Oedipus was probably the most enjoyable, which is the story of the um, uh, king who has this crazy infatuation with his mother, and he's blinded, and it's a wild tale where you get the Oedip- Oedipus complex from. And, yeah, it's it's so I'm, that that's all uh, that's all you sort of see doing records as is doing this character doing this um being someone you're not uh, it's just really exciting to me be, being able to be someone that you're not cause being yourself fucking sucks <laughs> so uh yeah uh
1: was that the same with I want gold because on that track you're kind of writing from the perspective of someone
2: yeah yeah I just want to create this nasty sort of uh character that's just a an, an exaggeration a a blown out version of an, an almost a uh, caricature of so much of the deserving right-wing attitude that's there now and you know people call millennials sort of entitled but i don't think you get more entitled than old bald white guys from pretty well-off families (laughs) yeah it's all projection man it's all um yeah i want gold was a really exciting song to do Uh, very fun
1: was that something you'd had in your head for a while did you have the idea that you wanted to write something about bankers and the kind of I guess it touches a wee bit on the kind of financial crisis type thing too
2: at first it was literally a prayer to myself at four in the morning in bed just saying I want gold I want money I want to feel like Bugs Bunny (laughs) that's where it started and then you know as as you go on you start twisting twisting and turning different different parts of it and yeah it just sort of unravels itself and you you, you create that sort of yeah banker that sort of big guy with the you know that sort of cartoon guy with the big you know bag that has the dollar sign on it and yeah it's
1: one of those man kind of scrooge McDuck figure (laughs) yeah diving into a pool of gold
2: that's exactly actually i'm pretty sure that was on our mood board for, uh, for I want gold.
1: <laughs> Wait, so did you, did you have a mood board for each individual? Yeah, track? yeah,
2: yeah. Every, every track we flesh out with, with imagery and with writing around it. And, uh, which is really, it, it's quite disappointing actually when we release the tracks and people only get this sort of face value thing where I'd love one day to be able to share all of these sort of thought dreams and, uh, writings that we have around each track because it just we basically we treat each track as its own little world and just expand it out into yeah stuff that we just it just we just get kicks out of it you know
1: and you get a real sense of that with like circle song when you think about the types of things you're referencing and the kind of imagery in that
2: yeah, Circle was probably the, the, the one that we, we wrote the most around, actually. I think we had this, um, this crossroads short story around it. Uh, it's like six or seven pages long. Just this idea of this protagonist getting to a crossroad. And, you know, one road was winding and you couldn't see where he was going, but it could le- lead to, you know, success or it could lead to the end, the end of the road, you know, ultimate failure. On the other way, said distinctly that it was going to your own doom and it spelt it out for you this road will go to your doom and but it's straight and it's an easy road and it's it's just you can see the end right there so do you go for the one that also probably goes to your doom but you got to twist and turn you got to fucking you know follow it to the end of the fucking earth on the slightest chance you could come to peaceful pastures you know whereas the other one is you know dead easy and a lot of people have to make that decision you know and it's just fascinating to play around with with words around stuff and
1: so was that kind of that story that you'd written was that written before or after the lyrics for the song came it was written after the lyrics
2: yeah the the, I, i always think that with lyrics it's a splash of paint on a canvas and then afterwards you interpret that paint on the canvas um so you just let it do its own thing first you know whatever it is that comes to you and you know lightning bolt in your head sort of thing <laughs> afterwards you say well what the fuck have I wrote here and sometimes it's a load of shite <laughs> and you've just got to accept that sometimes you have to look and think well that's no good but sometimes it's like well we're on to something here
1: that maybe explains as well why you have to wait until you've finished working or I mean it ties into what we're saying about when you finish working on a record, that's when you can speak about it because the process for a record then becomes kind of working out what it is you're trying to say with it and expand upon it and yeah. develop it fully.
2: I imagine that that is something to do with that, and you always run into the risk of um, over-explaining yourself. I'm so guilty on so many levels, so you, you try and hold yourself back to give the audience room to interpret the, themselves, and and you know they 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 can make their own you know at this rate the way that I'm explaining our stuff we never have any fucking 12 versions of the shining explanations that we on our stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah because uh, but but that's the thing and, and and also that's a very important thing even though I have my own interpretations of what we do I want other people to sort of have a you know their own thoughts and their own feelings on it because again you know I'm just a vehicle for whatever it is that we're writing um i'm not the be all and end all you know the audience is that definitely
1: is it ever difficult to leave things open do you kind of have a tendency to want to tie them up and and wrap it up in your vision or have you is it quite easy to kind of leave that space for people to impart their own
2: no i think i find it quite difficult to leave the space actually yeah everything to me that i do feels rational you know on all walks of life you know i very rarely do anything that feels irrational to me whether that's just narcissism or what i don't know but um yeah, so it is very difficult for, um, for me to leave things open. But I, I don't know. I, I need a psychiatrist to explain that, Alex. I, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. You know, I just do it.
1: <laughs> How does that, that rational approach to everything manifest itself when it comes to your creativity at large, though, in the kind of the process that it is?
2: Everything creativity. has to work. Every, every, everything has to feel right. I think there's a lot of feel in, in, in our band, and you just know. When you're, when you're not on the same wavelength with someone, um, you know, straight away. Uh, but the complete opposite of that, which is what we're experiencing at the moment, is when you are all in the same mindset and you're all on that same level of, of, of thought um, and of empathy, you know, and of uh, understanding that every, you know, everyone is a human being and everyone is, has their own very, very, very complicated lives then everything just just works. You, you find a groove and, and it becomes rational. You know, it, it, it just makes sense. Sometimes you can't describe why something sounds so good. If you had some sort of music theories come in and they'd be like, well, it sounds good because that's there and that's that and this is doing that and that's fucking that. But we never look at it like that. You know, we never break anything down like that. It just, it just works. Um, but the obsession comes when <clears throat> you go into a studio and, again, it just... Uh, perfection to me is rational that 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 is just something that goes in my head absolute perfection is the rational thing for me uh yeah I'm a bastard to be in a studio with but I like to think that it's 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 for a good cause
1: (laughs) (laughs) is was that the same with both your collaborations with both Rob and Gavin are they both kind of in a similar mindset when it comes to perfection yes
2: and no uh I think they actually Bring me off of that path a little bit, and sort of put a hand around me after I've had a tantrum, and and say, look, it's not that big of a deal. Um, focus your mindset on that a little more. So we come full circle. You know, you, you, the the most the importance of producers is is to have that guide in hand and uh, tell you when you're being a little bit silly over things. But at the same time, producers have just a a, a wonderful understanding of of music and. They, 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 they just learned how to be very quick at it and <laughs> because they've had 15, 20, 30 years of experience. But we're still new in the game, you know. And
1: it comes back to as well what you were saying earlier about producers kind of having to stop you going down those rabbit holes. They have this ability to see everything all at once, the entire record in view, whereas when it comes to perfectionism, you are kind of, you know, fixating on the one thing in that moment. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, don't get me
2: wrong. If we had unlimited time in the studio and, you know, an unlimited budget, then I'm sure management at the label would be like, yeah, let Tom do what he fucking wants. (laughs) But that's not fucking, uh, you know, the the reality of the situation. Uh, The reality of the situation is, you know, time is money and you've only got so much time to deal with, so you have to manage that correctly. All I'm saying is, if you gave me unlimited time and unlimited money, I would make the fucking best record you have ever (laughs) (laughs) hit. But until that day, We'll have to watch it, won't we?
0: <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50